Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what does utopia look like? Utopia, I think, is an important concept because obviously we'd all like to live in a better future. So as a starting point, it might be useful to actually define what the theoretical best future is, um, even if it's not necessarily achievable, it might give us sort of a, a signpost or a guide to where we're trying to get to. And I think we want this theoretical best future to be something, first of all, that most people would actually want to live in, right? And and second, something that you could imagine, you know, living in indefinitely, right? That it's not going to get boring or run into problems over time, right? But obviously trying to define what a utopian society would look like is extremely difficult, not surprisingly. And we're going to kind of show that in this podcast by uh, dividing it into about three different parts. So in the first part, we're going to talk about what might be some external approaches to utopia, like how to organize society. We're going to talk about some of the sort of utopian buzzwords out there today, like uh, abundance uh, or transparency, and kind of unpack those and see where the problems might lie. Uh, In the second part, we're going to talk about internal approaches to utopia. And we're going to talk a lot about the philosopher David Pierce and the idea of the hedonic imperative. Uh, And then in the third part of the episode, uh, we're going to talk about something called fun theory, which is the creation of Eliezer Yudkowsky and kind of talk about, you know, if we literally can imagine any future we want, we just take away all the constraints. Like, can we, even at that point, can we solve this problem of what we would really want? And I think it turns out to be really difficult. But let's first just start with like, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on history, but a very, very brief review of the term, just because it's kind of a cool term in its construction in that it's like built on a homonym of two different prefixes that sound the same, but mean completely different things. Right, right. It's a made up English word that's constructed of Greek roots that were chosen for their similarity. Right. So one of them is OU, which means no, uh, as in this this is no place that really exists. Right. And, it's like a prefix of negation. Right. Right. And the other one is EU, which is just the word for good. Uh, so it's a good place. So simultaneously, that word conveys that it's a good place to be, but it's also, it doesn't exist. Or you is a pretty exist. flexible uh, prefix in Greek too, because it means good, but it also means true, which those concepts are all, not always the, exactly the same. It's got a lot of internal contradictions in the right. in the creation of the word, which of course it's this far off place we're trying to imagine, but it's very difficult right. oh, to... Oh, the other part of the word, if it's not obvious, means place. Otopia, yes. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, so ter- uh, Thomas More, who who, who uh, conceived of the term, uh, I think was tickled by the idea that it was both no place and a good or true place at the same time. And that's sort of where the word utopia comes from. Um, so I'm just going to start in the beginning where I think most people have traditionally started, which is with external approaches to creating a utopia. I think a lot of people ask the question, well, what does this utopian society look like? What are their social structures? How does their government work, right? Uh, there's a tradition of like uh, socialist utopias that uh, people mm-hmm. have put forward that are some of the earliest versions of this. Right. Almost all these external approaches can be problematized pretty easily, right? So I'm just going to start with the one that I think I see the most in futurist circles out there on the internet, which is this whole abundance idea. It's a combination of a surplus of resources, right? So there's no need to fight over them, along with diminishing returns in terms of like human needs. We're just sort of getting to a point where- Right, diminishing human needs uh, and abundant products creates a type of utopian scenario where the price of everything goes down and down and the quality of everything goes up and up. 
I've seen it assumed by some people in the community that therefore that leads to a completely post-scarcity world where why would there ever be war or dissatisfaction or suffering ever again if that's the direction that we're going? I think you can problematize that a variety of ways. I think somebody who's done that is Robin Hanson. Sure. Whose book Ted and I are currently working through. Yeah, we're, we're getting through that book. And I, his book is fairly complicated, but I think the general idea there is that natural selection kind of drives living things to propagate themselves. And so I think the concept in that book is that some of the gains that we've had have been the fact that population growth has slowed recently in developed nations and that that trend is sort of anomalous and that probably won't continue. And that especially if we can get to a point where we're creating virtual entities uh, and his book is all about like uploaded minds that exist as software. So you can copy them very easily. And he's basically just saying that we will have as much population as the resources can bear exactly and that that will always be the equilibrium you trend towards. And as such, you won't really ever achieve this sort of post-scarcity ideal, even in a virtual space. Right. Well, he's assuming that essentially there'll be a massive population explosion in the, you know, in the form of uh, digital persons um, that and, will take up any slack resources that we have. And maybe he's right about that. But I think you can problematize this maybe in an even easier way by just relating to positional goods. Like, uh, even mm-hmm. in a world of complete surplus of all that we need to survive, there'll still be some positional goods left, and I could reasonably imagine human beings making each other miserable over those positional goods exclusively. Um, right, and, Verter- and so that's an easier way to problematize that idea rather than, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with uh, the Hansen approach either, but I think that maybe is a little bit more complex to wrap your mind around. Um, right, right. Well, I, I, and similar to what you said, yeah, Werner Vinge, I think, said something about like how he doesn't buy a post scarcity because he says like any sort of thinking mind will always like reach for things beyond its grasp right and like so the very word scarcity is like it has to be defined in terms of what people want right so right perhaps human beings will create new scarcities by wanting new things infinitely exactly because scarcity is a property of the human mind like i could be in a post-scarcity world right now if i just became like a complete zen buddhist and said i didn't want anything right but you know in the future i might be this like hyper powerful being and i might decide i want mars and this other hyper powerful being is like no i want mars and then all of a sudden we have a scarcity situation i mean right as long as you guys both want the authentic mars and don't just want a simulation of mars which in that world would be totally fine uh but yeah i i think you know everything is so that, that whole argument of will abundance create a utopia or will will it just uh, make the world better than it is now while still leaving conflicts i think is it's easy to see it going uh that way well uh, are all wars and is all unhappiness really caused by scarcity and I, i've seen it reduced to that by you know it's a very optimistic viewpoint on human nature i don't think it's i won't say i think it's wrong but i think it's very optimistic to think that all war and strife is caused by legitimate scarcity and not simply by um, the darker parts of human nature uh, relating to positional goods. Right. So just to very quickly summarize, because we went all over the place there, (laughs) uh, abundance may or may not solve these problems and create a utopia because one, competition for things may continue. It's not clear that that will stop. And also because if we just keep creating more beings to use up the more resources, then we, we end up in the same place, which is the Hansen argument. Uh, So another utopian buzzword is transparency and extreme transparency and whether or not uh, maybe making everything transparent in terms of information uh, solves some of the traditional problems that have held back society like, say, corruption or crime. 
Uh, the idea being that if we didn't really have any privacy uh, and everybody sort of could see everybody else's business, uh, that we could prevent you know, some of the biggest offenses. And not just those offenses that are committed by citizens, but also those that are committed by people in power. Right. Uh, with, uh, with everyone being surveilled and all that information being available to everyone else, uh, you might be able to reduce corruption and backroom dealing and secrecy to the point where those kinds of things are no longer problems in society. But it's not clear that that would create uh, a utopia on its own. It's not clear that it would create a utopia on its own, and it's not clear that everybody would get on board with that. So we tend to think that we're headed in that direction. Generally speaking, there's going to be more surveillance, right? There's going to be more transparency just because of the difficulty of containing these technologies. Yes, but it's not going to happen completely. It's not without uh, friction. Without Right, without friction and without distribution differences. You know, uh, some people are going to have more access to information than others, just by the nature of the way these things roll out. And also culturally, people really don't like this idea. I mean, th- True. <laughs> people are really upset about their privacy going away. Certainly in the West right now, that's um, that's definitely true. Now, I, I, you know, this would be a topic for another podcast. I think maybe there's, you know, that's just a cultural thing that can evolve and change to where everybody's okay with knowing everybody else's business. But that's, it's not clear that we're going to get there just because the cultural resistance might be so intense. So, at least if you're trying to put forward an idea of utopia that you're trying to get people on board with, mm-hmm. you have a like a PR problem with this one. Right, right. right. Like, well, and because the most commonly known depiction of this idea is, of course, a famous dystopia. It's 1984. Well, but that is one <laughs> right? way. So I think that's some of the, the cultural resistance, I think, uh, is reflected by if, or maybe is even caused by the you know, the, the well-known parable of, you know, surveillance turns into power for the powerful, not for the, uh, the everyman, right. uh, that e- concept. Right. Even though the distinction that advocates here are making is that it's not, we're not talking about one way, top-down surveillance. We're talking about surveillance or covalence right. where, we're where it goes both yeah. ways and where, uh, you know, if anything, the average person's access to information about the official is greater than the official's uh, access to information about the average person uh, because the officials are fewer and therefore more, you know, more likely targets. Um, And I think that's a possible outcome. And obviously that puts the lie to, to what Orwell was worried about. But I think that, you know, the, the enduring popularity of that uh, story in our culture, I think shows uh, the, the anxiety that people have over if this technology comes out, I don't think they trust that it will be used to their benefit. Right. And, and uh, yeah, I think David Brin is one of the major people out there that's in support of this idea as being the only way forward, this covalence surveillance idea. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's necessarily gaining a lot of ground at the moment. We'll see. Right. Over time. And I, I mean, again, I don't think that covalence necessarily leads to utopia, but I do agree with uh, Brin that we're going to have more surveillance either way. So it, it would be better if it were this covalence type and not the top-down 1984 yeah, it's not type. A, it's not a panacea necessarily. Uh, and I don't, obviously David Brin wouldn't argue that. Uh, but again, if you're taking a simple view here, you might argue that transparency like abundance could be some sort of cure-all that's going to just inevitably get us to utopia. And I think that's too simplistic of a view. Right. Um, the next one is you sort of have these two goals that society has of, of democracy and, and meritocracy, right? And we kind of we tend to these tend to both be positives right but in if you take them both to their logical extremes it's hard to figure out how to integrate them like what what does that ideal future look like right where you integrate those two concepts of like because technology i could see it in heavily enabling democracy let's just 
imagine for a second that we were allowed to redesign the voting system and everything. So sure. More... So you could imagine like a highly participatory democracy enabled through computers where like uh, everyone has the right to vote on every single thing the government does and you're only limited by your own interest and uh, uh, involvement. But in addition, you would also, like you that. would design it in an intelligent fashion. You would design it where, you know, it's not like one random Tuesday where you have to read a whole like poorly written book that's like and vote on a whole ton of issues. You'd get like one issue every You have every like an five. AI assistant who reads that stuff for you, mm-hmm. right? Like lets you know when you need to vote. Well, no, no. What I was going to say is that it, it'd be broken down. I mean, a simple fix to that, like to, I'm talking about like sort of the ballot initiative process in, in California is that like, why aren't we voting continuously? Why isn't like one issue per week for 52 weeks, right? Instead of like all these issues all at once on one day. Right, like, right, I, right. I mean, that's just one idea, but the design sure. of the system is not optimized to bring in people's participation, either technologically speaking or just in terms of making it um, palatable and easily digestible. Right, socially. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyways, you could you could really push that direction, and you could get a really responsive, participatory democracy. But then I think you know, I don't know. I mean, some people hate on democracy. I mean, this is not actually like it, I guess democracy. When you say the term, everybody's on board. But when you actually talk about that reality, people go, oh, but you can't let the people decide everything. Imagine how awful that would be. Well, yeah, I think people, people are stupid. Uh, They're sheep. They yeah. don't know what's going on. People right? don't realize, I think, how hostile they are to the idea of democracy. I happen to really support this idea. I think the more democracy, the better. And uh, there are definitely downsides to a democracy. Uh, democratic governments tend to be slower, for example, less uh, you know, quick to move, more biased toward inaction. Um, and those are structural things that just have to do with when you include a lot of people. But again, would, it, would democracy bring us to a utopia? You know, I don't think so. I think it would bring us to um, maybe a more equitable version of society than we have today. Uh, but I don't think it would... Uh, get rid of all of our problems because uh, entrenched interest groups in a democracy would still have a lot of power and uh, they would potentially still be able to skew outcomes toward entrenching themselves further, which is uh, which is a serious problem in society. Yeah, I, I think the best thing that we could hope for, I think this would actually be great. I mean, I'm, I'm for it, but uh, is, is a little more responsiveness. If we could push up further on this line, we might get a government that changed faster. <laughs> Right, in the response to or that uh, just acted more in accordance to the will of the majority rather than in accordance to the will of the richest uh, uh, majority. But clearly, there would uh, still be <laughs> concentrations of power, and clearly, it would still make mistakes. So it's not like it would be. A, yeah, it's a, not like a group of people all acting together never made a bad decision, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, so let's move off of that. I, I mean, I also brought up meritocracy just because, you know, in the sense that you could also design this to, you know, rely heavily on the advice of experts, say, as opposed to uh, everybody. Uh, that would be like sort of a counter proposal. And, and there's there probably is some gray area in the middle there of like merging those two systems. But, sure. Well, like we have now, we have yeah. elected representatives and then we have quite a few experts who are in civil service who uh, who work with them. And the trouble with any meritocracy is always, how are you measuring merit and can it be gamed? And if it can be, then you start to have problems over time. And if it is really well designed, then, uh, then those systems can work pretty well. Uh, this next thing is kind of just a far future fun thing, but it's like... Uh in some of the visions of the future that you see, say, in, like, science fiction, right, I feel like I've seen... Well, actually, the most common one, actually, is where it's, like, a one-world government, right? Right. It's, like, everything is united under one world, and it's, right. you know, like, it's... Which uh, is a, a, fe- a Nazi-era fear, basically, right? It's, like, uh, it's like a fear that was created in 
because uh, in World War II, the Third Reich was trying to literally take over the whole world. That was their stated plan. Certainly when it's a dystopian picture. Sometimes it's a utopian picture where it's like, uh, you know, we all have shared interests in like preserving the planet and, uh, right, right. you know, like moving beyond it and surviving together. And we're so all humans. So it could be humans. like a, a Kumbaya, UN, Buckminster Fuller, uh, Spaceship Earth kind of. Uh, exactly. Kind of uh, a one world government as well, which is just a positive take on that same thing basically. Right. And so I think that's sort of one vision of utopia. But then the other one is this this hyper-individualism that a lot of people prize, almost like sort of a libertarian attitude where it's like, well, I've got my little uh, virtual fiefdom and you've got yours. And we have like, instead of a one world government, we have these micro nations that are as small as possible, that are like tiny communities that are completely setting their own rules. You don't see this as much. but Yeah, I- this is a little bit hard to, I think, imagine. But maybe a way to describe this is like um, a future where everyone's website becomes their world you know like you have control over a little bit of server space somewhere and in that space you can create whatever virtual environment you want you can let in whomever you want and other people can do the same thing so you're all sort of hermetically sealed in your little bubbles uh, where you have a lot of control, but then the the world outside is is sort of not clear what's what's controlling that world in these scenarios. Well, there it's it's some federated thing. I mean, that, that's the more extreme version you're talking about, I think. But I mean, I guess before we even go into the virtual territory, I mean, you could imagine like. Is the trend towards uniting under one government or is it towards having multiple flavors of governments? Because you could just think about this on the level of cities or towns, like all becoming basically their own power centers, right? Well, but in the physical world, there's lots of very pragmatic reasons why that's just not going to happen, like supply chains and defensibility of land masses and such such like. The way I should have put this, actually, because like the other... Uh, things we talked about were all united around single terms that are supposed to fix everything like uh-huh. abundance, transparency, right. democracy. Right. I think the single term here might be decentralization. So I'm talking about a completely decentralized government as opposed to a centralized government, right? Like, Got it. Okay. So the idea being that everybody's sort of their own node and uh, there's some very basic agreement that we all come to so that we can all be sort of on the same network. But then other, other than that, other than some like really, really basic federated agreement everyone's sort of on their own but practically speaking a a node might be you know it might be the size of a town or something uh it doesn't have to be a single person sure but it it would be more decentralized than today's government right oh and it'd be more voluntary right like the idea being that uh the people in that town want to be part of that collective mode and if they don't they can go be their own mode or they can move to the other town that offers them a better right. setup, right? I mean, that you'd want competition and all those things. This is an ideal that you could imagine, but they're sort of competing ideals. Like, right, is it better to just you get together and manage the Earth's resources, like, you know, as a group? Or is it better to kind of like break into this like hyper libertarian decentralized Well, it, it does seem to me like it's honestly just a different route to get to a one world government where it might be frightening to have a traditional government structure the way we have in nation states taking over the whole world because those structures tend to be pretty localized and not very responsive. But uh, if we were instead, uh, you know, millions or even billions of autonomous uh, city-states or homestead states or whatever you're imagining uh, that then federated together into one giant federation uh, under very basic common terms. You could potentially have a one-world government that could do some of that global uh, coordinating that you would need to achieve a utopia without uh, the kind of tyranny that you would expect from a typical 
Third Reich or UN style takeover, you know? It seems like, though, that still constitutes a kind of federation. Whereas, I mean, if we actually decentralized and everyone's literally on their own and they're not interacting with one another, there'll be no coordination and it won't be a utopia. It'll be a, you know, it'll be a... Well, it might be some emergency. Uh, some kind of, of anarchy, yeah, basically. Yeah. Which, you know, would, might be peaceful. I'm not suggesting it would necessarily tend to war, but it wouldn't be able to coordinate on the global level in order to do things like distribute resources most efficiently or something like that. But anyways, yeah, the boundaries, I guess, between those things are actually potentially kind of porous uh, and like hard to define. And, I, I, you know, really, that's the big point of this episode is that, like, you know, this is not a simple thing. I mean, it's easy to just say, oh, we need more abundance or we need more transparency or we need more democracy. And obviously, technology enables all these things. But then when you actually take them to the logical extreme, it's not solving everything. And it's not clear that you're creating a vision that you could get everyone on board with. And so these are all the external pro- approaches. And I think um, they're all like areas to explore and to think about. But I think definitely, like, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of work in terms of, like, really realistically explaining how some of this stuff would work, right? It just doesn't actually seem, at this point, with what we've discussed, that it would be possible to design a perfect society using purely external approaches. You know, even if we were to eliminate material scarcity, maximize democracy and uh, possibly decentralization as well... Uh, maximize transparency, I still think we'd end up having conflicts and problems and reasons for people to to fight. Which segues very nicely to our next section, which is sort of taking a more internal approach. Someone I'm going to talk about a lot in this section of the podcast is David Pierce. He's a philosopher, uh, author of something called The Hedonistic Imperative. And uh, he actually has... Actually, I'm going to go ahead and just quote what he says... Sadly, what won't abolish suffering, or at least not on its own, is socioeconomic reform or exponential economic growth or technological progress in the usual sense or any of the traditional panaceas for solving the world's ills. Improving the external environment is admirable and important, but such improvement can't recalibrate our hedonic treadmill above a genetically constrained ceiling. And then he goes on to talk about how, like, there's no real evidence that even with all of our technological progress that we've actually gotten any happier, right? I mean, so his direction is saying, well, we need to actually attack the root cause, which he would describe as suffering itself, which is, of course, a property of the human mind, not of the way that humans are organized governmentally, right? right or socially. This is something that Buddhists have known for a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, this is not a new idea, yeah. but it's a, it's a different way to look at it. And, uh, uh, he does kind of really, uh, in his writing, play out this idea as sort of as far as he can take it. He's actually somebody who's advocating what he calls like, you know, paradise engineering or right. the, this hedonistic imperative is sort of the imperative that we have to end suffering, not just for humans, but for all living things at the level of their brain chemistry as a sort of a world project that we right. need to undertake. Right. Uh, which, you know, that's a compelling uh, vision. Uh, certainly pain uh, or suffering is, uh, it's the most concrete result of uh, anything that we might call unhappiness or whatever. That's like a very vague idea. Uh, so if we can get rid of that, then like the, the Buddhist uh, suggests, you know, you can have a different kind of experience, uh, which might approach uh, this idea of, of utopia. Yeah, so he, uh, he kind of begins his argument by making a plea for the fact that, you know, this is possible. Because a lot of people, I think, are going to, their initial response is, well, you, a couple things. One, they might say, well, this is technologically infeasible and impractical, which, of course, it is now with today's technology. Or they might say, 
Uh, well, if you just make, if you just get rid of unhappiness, then um, somehow we're impoverished as a species, or like we need pain to have meaning, or or they might even say like we need pain to have motivation, which I think makes a little more sense. And so like if you get rid of uh, pain, then like we'll all just sit around like pleasure zombies on the couch doing right. nothing, and then we'll die as a race, right? Right. And the dystopian vision of that is Brave New World, which we've talked about in the past on this right. podcast, and which we find a more compelling vision of the future than than 1984 in some ways. And uh, they obviously use drugs and other technologies in that book to basically abolish people's suffering. And it is presented as having some humanity having been lost in the process. And that's, I think, a common worry in art. And it's not just about uh, suffering. It's also um, the same argument comes up with death. Uh, which right. we talked about when we talked about longevity on the on the podcast, and you know, I, I think that that's a very natural human justification type response to the inevitability of something. When you're going to feel pain like every single day for the rest of your existence, and then die, you might start to think, well, pain and death are good for me because sure. they help me to contrast with other things that I don't hate so much and they, you know, whatever. Uh, so I think the human mind obviously is, is built to justify in that way. And that makes sense, but I don't really buy that argument. Now, obviously, uh, the reason we don't just put heroin in the water supply is that, uh, there are current, you know, things that, uh, painkillers, things that reduce suffering, uh, have lots of side effects, uh, that we find societally unacceptable, but it's possible that that that's uh, defeatable. We, yeah, we have a lot of blunt tools today. So so you have to start with the premise that, yes, today's technology for doing this is limited. So let's we have to imagine into the future things that we can't yet do. But his argument is all about, I think, what is possible. Well, So this is something that I wasn't really familiar with until I started reading uh, his stuff, which is the idea of a hedonic set point, which is that there's scientific evidence that basically you're born with sort of a set amount of happiness that you kind of revolve around you know like you you have like a sort of your baseline and uh, a really good day you'll go above it and a really bad day you'll go below it but that's kind of largely determined by your your genetics uh sort of at birth and so there are literally just naturally happier people and naturally uh more depressed people yeah that seems intuitively right it seems intuitively right but it's it's a very important to, to point out like when you go ahead and start saying things like oh you know we need suffering or suffering is important well how is it fair that some some people just have more inherent suffering than others, right? It, sure. And, and why would we uh, necessarily just accept that as a as a given a design of how things are? Um, and I think the other issue that that I alluded to earlier is like sort of the lack of motivation, right? Because pain does play an important role, right? I mean, there's a reason we have pain. It, it's like a it's a warning system. It's basically. a huge signal to like you know get out of the way, you know, take your hand off the fire, whatever it is, right? Right. Um, and again, you see that dramatized in these dystopian scenarios that we're talking about. One, one uh, that we've mentioned before that's not Brave New World is, is uh, David Foster Wallace's book, right. If in a Jest, where there's like people literally sit on the couch and watch this uh, entertaining it's movie. Su- super compelling entertainment until they die. Until they die. Yeah. Or, or a lot of people are familiar with the, the rats uh, in the, I think it's like the Skinner Box experiment. Right. Uh, right. That keeps pressing the lever. Uh, I forget the exact details, but like it doesn't do anything. It doesn't eat. It doesn't sleep. It just keeps releasing the, um, stimulating its brain until it just dies. But you see, the fact that you have people that are naturally happier, that are doing things in the world, there's these hyperthymic people that, you know, they're not, uh, they're always happy and they're not manic and they're not bipolar and they respond to their environment and they have motivations and they do things, right? But they are happier than the average person. So like there's enough examples in, of, you know, happier people 
that exist and they still do things that it's clear that like it's this is not an all or nothing situation it's not right, like we just right. we just abolish all suffering and then we're pleasure zombies we can kind of compress the top of the spectrum uh, the way that david pierce puts it is like retaining a happiness gradient you know or you and i have discussed this before right. in different terms we talked about it in, in music terms as like like sort of compressing the dynamic the dynamic range. range like if you think about uh your happiness as being like an amplitude graph right uh uh, you could be, you know, at the bottom of the graph, you're very depressed. At the top of the graph, you're as happy as you can get. Uh, you could potentially reduce the range of that graph, and then you'd still become unhappy at times. Uh, so you'd still have that negative signaling power, but you just never would become as unhappy as you did before. And also, uh, you could move the whole center of the graph up so that, you know, you can still hit those heights of happiness uh, while while reducing the the, the lows. Right, um, right. So you still have that contrast that would say like, well, this is a comparatively worse day. I should be doing things differently in my life. The right. Way, so that you would still have things guiding you, uh, your actions, like to base your decisions on differences right. of experience. Right, because pain and, pain and pleasure are so important to our, our motivational system. But at right. the same time, those bad days would be like eh, mildly annoying instead of like crushingly depressing. You know, you'd bring up the, the floor. Yeah, you bring up the floor and you try to do that without necessarily uh, compressing the peaks. You know, that seems like something that might be possible without terrible side effects. You know, obviously the technologies that we have for doing this now uh, tend to cause serious dependence and then tend to cause really nasty floors when you're not on them and they have a lot of problems. So we would have to engineer something that didn't have those issues. But uh, as we learn more and more about our own brain chemistry, it does become potentially feasible to uh, go in there and actually you know, flick the right switches and change the chemistry in the right way to uh, just across the board improve people's uh, happiness uh, without uh, <clears throat> without turning them into heroin addicts or the equivalent. Yeah, and and you know he discusses like some of those technologies. Like he he does the three that are gone through in the essay that I'm looking at right now are are wireheading, drugs, and uh, uh, genetic engineering, and that's in increasing order of what he thinks is is viable. Mm-hmm. So the wireheading is like what you do with the rats where you actually you like stimulate the pleasure centers of the brain directly. And his argument is kind of like just that's just not a viable long term solution because a society of wireheaders is just going to die off. They're not going to reproduce. They're not going to make more of themselves. Right. They're right. not going to care for each other. Now, he, he does add a caveat, which which is that maybe if you had like all of the important functions of society automated at, at that point mm-hmm. that uh, you could just offload all the important jobs and we could just sit around being wireheaded. But this has this utopian vision problem of like, again, nobody is going to like that. You, you pitch that to people. Yeah, it and, seems hard for people to voluntarily sign up for that, right? I mean, it sounds a bit like a kind of death or stasis uh, if you are so pleased at all times that you're just willing to let the entirety of your society just be automated in the background while you experience the pleasure you're experiencing. Yeah, and it seems like we should be able to do better than that. If we're really trying to imagine utopia here, uh, we uh, that one just sounds so creepy. I feel like we should be able to come up with something that's that's beyond that. Right, right. I mean, I think yeah. This comes down to what um, what do you value in human society? <laughs> and yeah. uh, if all you if your if your only utility function is end suffering, uh, you could more effectively do it by killing everyone. Right. <laughs> it's like yeah. Uh, and then 
you know, if you uh, if you say, okay, we want to end suffering, but we want to maintain life forms, then you get to this idea of of uh, of wireheading. But I think if you also uh, value human beings maintaining some amount of control or input into their environment, then you might want to st- take a step back and use a less invasive process. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so then he, he talks about drugs, uh, which, you know, we, again, we don't, the ones that we have are very blunt tools and it's unclear what we'll be able to develop. And then the last thing is, is just genetic engineering, which, you know, essentially if you in already just the fact that some people have higher hit on accept points than others means that just to the extent that in the near future, we're going to have parents exercising some control over their children and to the extent that any of these uh, traits can be identified if it's like would you rather your child be more or less generally happy oh no I mean if this was uh, an option on the market right now that I could uh, you know order my child to be to have the high happiness gene uh, it would strongly influence my decision to have a child or not I'd say that's like a major I mean at least for me personally that's a major fear that I have about having a child is that right. he'd be unhappy uh, and I would have to live with that <laughs> It makes your job as a parent really easy if they're I mean, uh, happier, naturally. Uh, you know, maybe that's because I uh, was a pretty unhappy child, but uh, so I feel like there's a high likelihood of my genetics uh, being related to that. But uh, yeah, I feel like if I could have a reasonable guarantee that the kid was going to be a happy kid, I'd be way more interested in creating one. So I, c- I could see that being a huge difference. And actually, this is um, reminding me of a discussion we had about nootropics and uh, in intelligence augmentation, which is that if, you know, the, the existence of Albert Einstein's and Stephen Hawking's uh, in the world uh, indicates that there's a range of human intelligence uh, that most people are not hitting. And that uh, with, uh, if we had better understanding with genetic engineering, we could make, uh, you know, all babies, uh, Einstein quality geniuses, even if we don't figure out anything new about, about how intelligence works, you know, uh, even if we don't create any super intelligent people. And I feel like that, that relates to this in the sense that we could create a a uh, generation of people who are intelligent and happy to the like greatest extent of normal human variation. Yes. Um, uh, which would already be a huge change, I think, uh, over the current average. And that doesn't require us to, you know, reverse engineer the brain to the point where we can, uh, you know, understand every little bit of it or, or, or augment our ability to experience happiness or intelligence beyond uh, normal human No, it basically now. require uh, identifying some traits, which is easier said than done, and, sure. and basically doing some selective breeding of the human species like we've done with other species. Sure. And uh, again, that sounds scary. That maybe has a bit of a public relations problem as well. But if you imagine the happiest people on the planet and you imagine that everybody was at that level of happiness that'd be a better society that would be uh, for certainly a happier society right and the same thing is true of intelligence so it, that's that's a, an i think an interesting way to look at this which is that uh the natural variation that we currently see already provides uh some idea of what kind of progress we could make uh without major major breakthroughs and i would say like big picture like this sort of internal approach to utopia i'm highly sympathetic to i mean i think we should tackle all of the complex societal organization issues but i think yeah if we want to actually have a happier future uh we have to deal with the brain well and yeah this maybe gets a little dark but if you deal with the brain it's a lot less important to deal with the societal issues Mm -hmm. uh because uh people who are generally happier for example will uh generally accept a less perfect government probably um so i think obviously it'd be great to uh attack all these things at once and try to create a world in which uh we have 
lots of participation and very low scarcity, but also the ability to modulate our own pain feeling, perhaps through our, our birth or perhaps through uh, you know actions we take after birth to reduce um, our, our suffering to the you know the greatest amount we uh, we can. At which that kind of transitions into my next topic, which is that you're talking about well there might be an acceptable compromise where maybe society's not perfectly organized, but at least we're happier and that would be pretty good. But I think, again, because the topic here is utopia, we should be trying to imagine... That's a better society, but it's not a perfect society. We should be trying to imagine the best thing, like, again, something that we would actually want to live in. And so, again, from... I realized that if I was hooked up to the pleasure machine as like a zombie, that that version of me would, would you know, give the double thumbs up sign and be like, doing great, past John. Like, <laughs> right. go ahead and just continue on the path you're on. <laughs> right. But like me, past John looking at future John on the, hooked up to that machine is, is recoils in disgust. And so right, right. I think we should be able to try to come up with a future that is actually one that feels like, oh, that is what we really want, right? On the less wrong website, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who writes a ton about futurist and rationalist stuff, has like this fun theory sequence where he tries to, uh, in like th- something like 31 articles, which I'm not going to go into all the details of, but it's it's interesting if you look it up, tries to define kind of what are some of the traits that you might want in an actual utopia. Well, this is such an interesting idea because it's trying to come up with, right, like a sort of formalized theory of what even is a utopia, which I don't think really exists. There's all these thought experiments and anecdotes and novels and such that people have created to explore the idea. Uh, but as we discussed, they have a lot of limitations. And uh, it's really interesting to try to tackle the idea of what would an ideal combination of societies and minds look like that would you know, constitute a perfect human society. Yeah, and I think that this is a a discipline that more people should write about. I think if that if I have any sort of point to this podcast, it's that it's that this is a hard topic. Uh, as I think we've said earlier, human values are very fuzzy and hard to pin down. And uh, but you know, if we can define where we want to go, maybe we can go there. Uh, and so you know, he talks about. I mean, some of these are fairly obvious, but again, they're obvious and yet they get left out of. A lot of they're obvious, but visions. they're hard to include in utopian visions, right? Right. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I've kind of, again, I've massively simplified because the actual original posts are fairly long and complicated, but like there's three that I've grouped together here, three traits, high challenge, complex novelty, and continuous improvement. So uh, some of these are fairly explanatory, but you know, life is more fun when it's not, when it's challenging, right? It's not, we don't always necessarily want everything to be easy, right? Uh so you have to, ha- but right. then e- right, difficult's not the same as painful. I think that's a that's an important like right. distinction to make, and we can eliminate pain without eliminating difficulty. I mean, the obvious example of this is games do this already, right? They uh, we talked about this one in our game yeah, podcast yeah. that you know a game, one way of thinking about a game is that it's a uh, you know sub- submitting yourself to unnecessary obstacles and the you know and then attempting to to surmount them, which uh, you know a, a world uh, that's utopian would have obstacles. They would possibly be unnecessary. They would definitely probably not kill you, uh, but uh, but they would be obstacles that would feel real to you in order to uh, provide you with that challenge. Right. We talked about the the Bernard Suits definition of game, which is sort of taking on these like inefficiencies, right, for the purpose of fun. Like we talked about golf, like you know, 
you could just drop the ball in the hole. It's but like you, the worst way to try to get that ball into the hole. But yeah. you make it more challenging, and then all of a sudden it becomes a game. It becomes fun. So yeah, I mean, applying that idea broadly, I mean, do we want a future where we're just lounging around all day? Maybe not. I mean, that doesn't sound as fun as one where there's these well-designed challenges. Um, another thing that I just mentioned on that list was novelty, uh, newness, obviously, is some, and uh, and another one is improvement. Like we want to be getting better. And so like the reason I've grouped these all together is because they all kind of inherently get used up, right? I mean, that's the problem with them. Like challenges get beaten and then you need a new challenge or novelty. Uh, you have that right. epiphany. You experience it and then it's no longer novel. And then it's over or a continuous improvement because of the hedonic treadmill, which I should define. We I, I mentioned this earlier. This is the idea that the human brain always kind of resets its happiness level back to that average amount. So even if you win the lottery... Right. So imagine a gerbil on the treadmill. He can run really fast and get halfway up the treadmill, but then he's right back down um, in, the, in the average spot that he's normally in. And that's uh, the same with your amount of happiness, basically, is the idea that you might uh, get happy, but then you'll quickly adjust to that level of happiness. It'll feel normal to you and you'll... Uh, need more uh, stimulation to feel happy again. Right. So because of the nature of challenges and the nature of novelty and literally this nature of the brain itself that it has this sort of like, uh, even if you kind of tried to defeat that, I mean, all this kind of implies that you would need to have a, a perfect utopia future. It couldn't be static, right? right. It would have to grow and change. It couldn't be like a, a, a milky white heaven. It would have to be a, a world that grows and changes uh, and some parts of it could be eliminated. It didn't it wouldn't necessarily have to expand indefinitely, but it would need to, you know, they'd need to rebuild it uh, the way they rebuild Disneyland every year. They have to take down something old and put up something new to create new novelty and new challenges and new room to improve. Right, because the people in the utopia would themselves be improving. Right, they would be they would be getting smarter they, as they mastered these challenges. They would know more. They would have they would have experienced more things. Right, and so the system has to keep feeding them new things. And so it's, it's, I think the way to summarize this overall is that a good utopia seems like it would have to be dynamic. And that is not how a lot of utopias are described. Right. Usually utopias, because it's easier to conceive of a static world, I think, than a dynamic world. Uh, they tend to choose a, a static place in, in time to, to depict their uh, utopia. But yeah, we would almost certainly need our utopia to be um, highly flexible and constantly changing. Right. I don't know why I just suddenly had a vision of like the sort of the classic fairy tale ending, you know, where the prince rescues the princess or whatever, and then they live happily ever after. And they just kind of like, you know, elide over that point. And of right. course, many people have like played with the joke of like smash cut to, you know, five years later and they're screaming at each other in sure. the kitchen or whatever. But like really like maybe the actual, the slaying of the dragon and the beating of that challenge, maybe it's like the, the actual fairy tale ending is that they just keep doing it over and over again but there's like the dragon can't ever kill them and uh right like well e every each week they face a slightly smarter dragon who's a little bit harder to beat but each week they also get better at uh defeating dragons uh with you know their sword fighting skills go up and they're and obviously the princess you know, would get the chance to rescue the prince because i mean come on i mean eventually don't... it's just going to be boring for both of them to have it go the other way so yeah we, they're we gonna have, have to switch roles we have to have some gender equality here yeah, too yeah. as well and maybe uh we have a world where the dragon rescues the princess you know, yeah, I mean, well, I it could be special. 
uh, equality as well. Actually, I'm going to use that as a jumping off point and go <laughs> to go a little out of order because another issue that Eliezer Yudkowsky brings up is that, so the dragon in that story, right? So we're now we're imagining the dragon would be like another agent, right? So you just treated the dragon like it was an actual person. And this, yeah. is, this is a key question. If we're imagining these like virtual futures yeah, that it's are- utopia for who, right? <laughs> that, are, that are populated by these really great artificial intelligences that are helping us live out our fantasies and stuff. Are these AIs that at that point crossing over into being like, conscious do they ha- are they persons and if so aren't we obligated you know as per the same logic as the hedonic imperative to like make sure that their lives are good too right so there, i think there's a lot of utopian visions that just postulate oh there's these ai beings everywhere without trying to answer the question like well is it fun for the ais well maybe it's really fun for the dragon ai to get slain you know could be programmed that way maybe i and it's maybe they're not conscious but since we don't understand consciousness it's a problem it's like when we make something that smart does it just naturally by property of having that intelligence sort of emergently become conscious or is are those things completely yeah are there principles by which we can uh design things to be conscious or not that's something we haven't really proven one way or another yet and uh that'll be a interesting to experiment about as AI science gets better, uh, because it's not even clear if you can ever truly know. You can only know whether the thing you've programmed insists it's conscious or not, right? Which is uh, its own sort of strange thing. But if the AIs insist they're conscious and want better treatment, then uh, that's a good indication we should probably give it to them. <laughs> yeah, if you've given them the ability to, to speak to us in that way. I don't know, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of issues there, but like, yeah, any utopian vision that relies on populating itself with artificial intelligence has to, I think, d- deal with this issue in some shape or form. Right. Um, another one, uh, I've grouped these ones together. He talks about living by your own strength, freedom to optimize, and amputation of destiny. I mean, you can kind of summarize all these as autonomy. I mean... Right, right, right. A How lot much of- control do you have over your own self and your own destiny so it's easier to imagine a utopia with like a godlike ai that uh you know coddles you and takes care of you but you need some agency i mean i think the the future that i want to live in is one where i have some control and i think this sort of like goes from small to big so on a small level like living by your own strength i think what he's talking about there is that like you know society now is really it has to be built around specialization, sort of in the modern world, right? You can't really, like, we, none of us actually live by our own strength in the sense that, like, we don't have the requisite skills to take care of ourselves on our own. Like, right, plus the resources that would be ne- necessary to have everyone do that are not available. We, we, you know, you have to find your own niche, like, one type of job that you can do, and then you go right. buy your... Sh- food at the grocery store or whatever. I mean, I mean, you can, right. I mean, not that people don't like farm in their backyards, but I'm just saying in general, like we're all tending towards specialization. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you might imagine that a utopia might kind of roll back that trend uh, and give people, you know, more of a sense that they're controlling all aspects of their life and less like a cog in a giant machine, you know, or, you know, sort of freedom to optimize. I mean, this is, again, kind of goes back to the idea of like a dynamic future, like the idea that it's not like we one day came up with the rules of the utopia and set them in stone. It's like, it's an evolving, right? uh, constantly optimizing system. The the participants in it would have to determine to a large extent how it worked based on their preferences and how it has so far affected them. Well, and be able to change it. Right. Right. And have some, like, this kind of comes back to democracy too, or like even just the way our legal system works, like, 
you know, it, it built precedents build upon each other. Right. And that's not a perfect system, obviously, by, by any stretch, but like it has built into it, this like ability to change. Yeah. And you would want something similar in a future. You wouldn't necessarily decide like, these are the rules. These are set in stone. Um, right. Any too rigid system is going to get gamed or break down in some way. It seems obvious that keeping people happy is too complex a goal to ever be accomplished by a very rigid system with set rules that never change. Or not even from a utilitarian perspective, just from like this sort of like vague, what feels right or fun. I mean, if if it's not changing, I think there's something about that. Yeah, well, rigid rules are also something that humans are basically just wary of, right? Because we see the negative consequences of rigid rules all the time in our in our existing societies and uh flexibility is going to be a key value obviously to uh something that's trying to do anything as complicated as keeping lots of uh you know intelligent actors happy right because ultimately i think you want to be able to make choices i mean this the the last point is the amputation of destiny i mean this is the biggest one it's like you want to feel like you can steer your future uh you don't want to feel like you're on a track what does he mean by amputation of destiny that would be like, that would be the bad thing, right? So that would be like, if you're, I don't know. I mean, the, the way, and again, I'm paraphrasing here and you should read the articles to, so the way I'm interpreting this right now is like, let's say uh, we designed the perfect experience, right? That was sort of a dynamic track mm-hmm. that you could go along. Sure. Right. And then that was just handed to you in the future. You say like, you go on this track, it's going to optimize your happiness sure. for, for N years. Um, but it's just a track. I mean, you have no control over your destiny. I mean, some AI designed that for you or, or some smart committee of people designed that for you. And maybe it's great and super fun and, and, and designed for you, but you're not really. But if you're, if you have the knowledge that it is preordained, it's going to be a serious bummer. Basically that's, is that the issue? Uh, and I would even go beyond, like, again, if we're sitting here trying to imagine the best of all possible worlds, you don't want to, yes, you could argue maybe you're just tricked into thinking that you have choices we've talked about before. Well, I mean, there, you know, we, li- we live in a deterministic universe. There's a possibility we're all tricked uh, <laughs> about... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get into free will because that's I mean, going to be you know, bad. I mean, obviously, that's a big question and it's not like a solved question. Um, I'm not actually not a, a believer in, in that type of destiny, but my point is just that it's not totally certain in our current world that we have control over our destiny. Uh, apparent control seems to be good enough for us. So it seems to me that if you had a certain amount of apparent control over your destiny, you'd probably accept that and be fine with it, even if, in fact, you, uh, you were running a track. True, but again, acceptance, like I would accept once I was on it, the pleasure machine and just being hooked up to it and being blissed out forever. But like... Right, right. That, it just seems like less of a difference from today uh, where our destinies are so overdetermined. Uh, not that we have no control over them, but that they're... There's so many factors. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get that. It's di- it's not an ideal... I mean, if we're holding ourselves to the high standard of something that appears totally uncreepy to our present-day selves and would also solve these problems of suffering, then yeah, that that uh, that does uh, move into creepy territory for sure. Although I find it less creepy than, uh, than say, wireheading. Yes, I, I would say on the spectrum, it's less bad. Let's see, I'll go... F- we'll talk about like two more big sort of concepts before I move off of this. So um, one, two I'm going to group together are uh, harmful options and, and, and devil's offers. So these are actually distinct, but they have some overlap. So, so harmful options, um, honestly, it's the flip side of that same coin. It's like if amputation of destiny is like, I have no choices. This is like, I have too many choices. Cause uh, again, 
Oh, so this is you're saying harmful options in the sense that it's like there's so many choices that it uh, it's be- becomes paralyzing. Well, because one version of not paralyzing, but just makes you on the whole less happy. I mean, like one version right. of utopia, if you imagine the super abundant virtual world that we're living in or something, is that you can do whatever you right, want. Right. And is that because people are constantly uh, forgoing options and because of the right, that could make your grasses greener effect just like so overwhelming that right. it could undo a lot of good it's like loss aversion it's like right. if every time you make a choice there's a million other choices that you didn't take that could have been better right that may you know not make you as happy as you could be right right um so devil's offers is more like if you're in this better designed utopia but then there's still this like temptation to the side here that's like oh you could just like walk into the infinite bliss portal right right then how are you going to resist that it's going to be hard like so if this utopia like constantly has these like sort of devils popping up or like they're not literally devils but it has these like options that are available to you where you can kind of like self you know, shoot yourself in the foot, basically, mm-hmm. um, then that's not necessarily a utopia you want because that's... Right. Well, that's an interesting argument about this idea of how much choice should you have, right? So you want to be able to make choices that affect your life and you want those choices to have enough consequence that you feel like they're meaningful. But you don't necessarily want in a utopia to have uh, choices that you can make that would lead you either to wireheading or lead you to death, let's say. You don't want to be able um, to lock yourself out of the system. You don't you don't wanna, wanna, right. You don't want to be able to lock yourself out of the system and you don't want to be able to um, to choose so wrongly that you can't get back right. uh, to where you were. So that's uh, the, you want to make some limit on people's choices so that they can't take these Faustian bargains right right so i mean that's that's a huge balancing act and that's just one complicated dimension that i think shows how difficult this issue is um the last thing i'm going to talk about is sort of more this uh, some of these social issues that are brought up in this fun theory sequence uh i'm not super familiar with robin dunbar but apparently he argued that the maximum human group size is around 150 but like a typical oh, right. band would be are you more familiar with this no name? just uh just in passing i didn't even know his name but i know what you're talking about this is like a, a social science sort of thing where they uh basically talk about like how many people you can sort of maintain as like friends or associates in your mind right like sort of uh that you can uh, keep as a good enough mental model of them that you sort of know who they are. Yeah, I mean, this intuitively seems right. So let, let's honestly just, since I haven't read his stuff, we'll just move it into more general territory, which is that the basic idea, I think, is just that, you know, there's probably some optimal number of, of people to know. And it's not the like, you know, when you live in a major city and you know, like thousands upon thousands of people, uh, or you live in a world of six billion people, mm-hmm. um, that may not be the optimal design. Uh, like six billion people, like that you have to like kind of six billion t- people is a lot for one brain to sort through at its current uh, ability level. Yeah, right. Now, I mean, I, maybe you want a size that preserves some anonymity, and you want like some fluidity of people coming in and out. But I mean. I don't know. I think what are people happiest with? Well, and the size of a society is different from the size of the, your um, associate group, right? Like you could have a society that's uh, considerably larger than people, you know, has, it contains many people you don't know. Um, But sometimes that's uh, problematic in societies. They get too big or too diverse and they don't cohere. People don't consider those strangers that they don't know as part of their in-group anymore. And that causes societal friction. So it's, I, I think, you know, on the one hand, right, there's there's probably an ideal design of like uh, town or, 
neighborhood or whatever the smallest unit of you know where you'd kind of know everyone friend group you know right. uh, social circle whatever you want to call it uh there's probably an ideal size of that which uh i don't know what it would be but you'd imagine it's pretty small like less than several hundred um uh, but then there's probably another number that's like the ideal larger conflation of of people that makes up a society uh before you start to really lose sympathy with those people and uh, you know those things uh would p- play into the design of any uh utopian political system probably. yeah in a theoretical utopia you wouldn't necessarily want to just like take all of the living yeah, agents and just dump them all into the same space like you might want to partition this this sort of future in a way that is optimal for uh for socializing and for people feeling comfortable and right. cohesive and whatever those values and are. And it's worth bringing up, I think, that uh, our current uh, optimization scheme has much more to do with physical geography than anything sociological. So, like, uh, we currently break up the world into nation states and then further into uh, provinces and states and uh, towns and well, uh, economics neighborhoods. too. I mean, people live in these dense cities where maybe they're less happy because of There's the economic economic opportunities, yeah. right? Um, and I think uh, the the size of nations, for example, varies really widely. The size of towns and cities varies really widely, and a lot of that is determined by like you know what land masses were defensible under old uh, military regimes, and you know where people happen to populate first, and and such like that. So those are very uh, random uh, <laughs> inputs compared to uh, what would so- sociologically, you know, produce the most stable or happy society. So I think uh, it's it's clear that we could do a better job of designing our partitioning uh, systems, uh, but also getting people to agree on those partitions uh, was, you know, a hundred year extremely violent project, <laughs> at least on the, on the level right. of like nation states that involved like, you know, a lot of injustice and a lot of uh, killing. So we wouldn't want to do it that way. We'd want to have people voluntarily um, agree to a new partitioning system that made more sense. Right. Well, and I think on top of this, I think an important underlying assumption that, that goes into this, the reason we're even trying to solve this problem is, is because social interaction, I think you want to be important in this utopia. Like, cause it's not clear from a purely utilitarian perspective that preserving these like interpersonal entanglements is, is the optimal choice in essence. Right. It, but it is the least creepy choice from the point of view of like a human being now, uh, who obviously we value our social interactions really strongly. We're very much social animals. Um, so if we're, you know, imagining what, a, f- a future utopia that uh, that uh, we ourselves now would uh, find acceptable, I think it would have to involve a certain amount of socialization. It wouldn't, I mean, you know, one thing we didn't quite bring up, I don't think yet, is the idea of like, you know, locking everybody in their own, or I guess we did sort of talk about this, but like lo- locking everybody up in their own virtual, you know, uh, headspace with AI uh, agents uh, so that everyone's experiencing a conflictless world. That is another creepy uh, future that could uh, be well, very happy. Well, and even if they're not just like virtual but, yes men, I mean, even if they are presenting interesting challenges, it's a little bit weird. I think, I mean, another way to put this is like, if you could imagine a future where there was like no love or romance and everybody just had their own personal sex spot or something. I mean, that might be from certain utilitarian angles, like seem like a very efficient future. Sure. But then it's not clear that that's the utopia we would want to live in. Well, it definitely uh, is creepy from our perspective today. Um, right, and I, I guess that that metric of like, is it creepy now, also shouldn't be the defining metric. This is why, again, this is so 
damn difficult is like because some of what we already do today would be creepy to people in the past and so we can't just rule out everything that looks creepy to us from our current vantage point sure but at the same time time we want to have something that people would voluntarily choose to do right because the second you have to impose this on people it's sort of not utopia anymore even if it's uh even if it results in bliss uh or something on the other end um so yeah i i mean if somebody said to me well you'll be you know it you'll be happy forever but uh you're never going to talk to another real human being you're just going to interact with well-designed ais that simulate human beings i would probably say no thanks (laughs) uh that doesn't sound perfect enough to uh to sure to uh, to take so um, you know, on that level, it does, um, it has the same problem that some of these other things have. Uh, the, the last one I'm just going to end on before we, we bring this to a close is, and is sort of the issue of, I guess, higher purpose. And so, I don't know, this one, I'm only going to talk about briefly. It, you could, I mean, in one sense, you're designing the future. You could sort of like scoff at this or does it sounds sort of just the phrase higher purpose sounds a little vague and hard to pin down, but I think it is a real issue that, you know, what are people striving for or or caring about like what is there left to sort of build i mean you know for example it obviously in this utopia there's not necessarily tons of traditional work to do um we've obviously talked a lot about that on the podcast and and maybe there's not work in terms of helping people left to do which is another thing you can build your life around because maybe everybody's doing okay in this utopia sure so then what do you turn to i mean some ideas are could be continuous pursuit of knowledge right could be like a higher purpose that people in a society could pursue you know until they've mastered all that there is to know in the universe or you know a higher purpose might be some kind of version of aesthetics you know just Mm -hmm. But it's not really clear what that would be, and and to the extent that people may want that in their future. Sure, and and since this is a dynamic uh, and growing society that we're imagining, I think there'd also be a purpose of expansion and continued survival, which may not be a matter of uh, scarcities, uh, finding food or something. It may be a matter of you know mastering space travel and figuring out how to uh, safely transport bodies or computers across the uh, expanse of space or something along those lines, uh, which could still be a project that would be undertaken in a utopia. Right. Um, I mean, until you actually like, because the universe I mean, still threatens point, to kill us at a certain point. Right. Yeah. At a certain point, you suffuse the entire universe with, uh, you know, computronium and uh, and you uh, stop it from uh, expanding through your, you know, advanced uh, knowledge of, and then uh, what, of quantum and then what? mechanics. At that point, you know, you'd have to come up with something new to, to worry about. But I'm confident that that's far enough off that we can think of something in the meantime. <laughs> I feel like, and then what is just kind of sums up everything there. It's like, you know, so you get, you solve Sure, the, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, uh, coming to a place where, which is the ideal human society is not the end point of the universe. So we can imagine things beyond uh, a utopian society, but I think uh, for humans as they are currently constructed, it's still an incredibly difficult thing just to imagine well, what would be the ideal uh, living environment for for those for for us, you know, for, for those things. Okay, so this has been a, a fun one for me, at least. Uh, hopefully, uh, you guys enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll yeah, be please back. leave us a comment. Tell us what your ideal society would look like or wouldn't look like, and uh, we'll see you uh, next week. Thanks for listening.
To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.